Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 20, The Tightening Noose. Welcome back, everybody. Now, last time, we saw the unexpected rise of Tsar Samuil and his much-diminished Bulgarian state, and what seemed like a fight to the death between him and the Byzantine emperor Basil II. We finished the last episode with Samuil fresh off a victory at Thessalonica, with successful raids going deep into Greece as far south as Corinth. The contemporary chronicle of the life of St. Nikon wrote that he was, quote, invincible in power and unsurpassed in strength, end quote. Now, the population of Greece was fearful at this resurgent Bulgarian power, reaching down into strongholds that had always felt far from the endless series of, nor- of wars that went on to the north. By 997, as pointed out by historian Paul Stevenson, Samuel controlled more land than Simeon had at the height of his power, now, this was also the year that Samuel formally took the title of Tsar, a truly ascendant year by those accounts. But all of that was about to change. The dreams of a new Bulgaria under a new dynasty were about to be crushed. Well, perhaps not crushed, but massacred and blinded. Samuel was about to witness the making of a legend as great as his own, the legend of Basil Bulgaroktonos or Basil the Bulgar Slayer. But before that, the noose Basil had drawn around the neck of Bulgaria for so many years had to slowly tighten. It begins near Corinth, where Samuel Samuel hears news about a new Byzantine army under Byzantium's best living general, Nikophoros Oranos, and has to rush north to meet the threat before Oranos can cut him off from his supplies and his countrymen to the north. Now, Samuel didn't have to travel far. Just about 200 kilometers north of Corinth, on the banks of the river Spercheos, the two armies found each other. By the time they met, Uranos had already recaptured the fortress at Larissa, which Samuel had toiled over for so many years. But Samuel remained confident. I'll let Runciman tell what happened next. Quote, on the banks of the river, the Bulgarians were encamped, laden with the spoils of Greece. The river was flooded from the summer thunder showers, and Samuel thought himself secure. But by night, the imperial troops forced their way through the turgid torrent and fell upon his camp. The Bulgarians were slaughtered as they slept. Samuel and his son Gabriel Radomir were wounded and only just managed to escape with a few followers. Their losses were terrible. All their booty was recovered, and all their prisoners released. Uranus returned in triumph to to Thessalonica, and later celebrated glory in Constantinople, having driven the invaders out of Greece. Another reminder of just how fickle triumph can be, particularly for the First Bulgarian Empire, and particularly for Samuel. Now, some accounts claim that Samuel and his son Gabriel Radomir only survived by hiding amongst the corpses on the battlefield. But regardless, 
Thousands had died and about 12,000 soldiers had been captured. The Tsar and his son now had 400 kilometers, about 250 miles, of harsh mountain terrain to cover on their way back to the capital at Ohrid. This journey made it impossible for Samuel to allow his wounded arm to heal properly. As a result, his arm healed at an angle of 140 degrees. Now, for those of you who don't remember geometry class very well, that is a wide angle, about where your arm is if you extend your hand out to shake someone else, and they're maybe half a meter away from you. But Samuel's wounds at the Battle of Spercheus were actually much deeper, much more serious than his arm. His aura, his mystique, his own self-confidence had all received grievous, though not mortal, wounds. And things were not about to improve. But Samuel was not allowed about to let setbacks stop him. Both he and we know that Byzantine tactics against Bulgaria at this stage tend to follow a fairly limited number of directions. The main one is to make an alliance and attack from two sides. Now, Samuel knew that the most likely source of such an alliance at this moment was with the Serbian principality of Dukla, a state whose territory at the moment was fairly similar to the modern country of Montenegro. Still, you can find a simple map on the website. Now, Dukla was ruled by a man named Jovan Vladimir, who had a close relationship with the Byzantines and ruled from the port city of Bar, resting at the foot of the Dinaric Alps. Now, personally, I'll never forget the first time I saw that city from those mountains, looking so peaceful beside the impossibly blue waters of the Adriatic. It's quite a sight. Now, Jovan Vladimir had sent an embassy to Byzantium just a few years previously in 992, but that failed. So two years after the Battle of Spercheus, Samuel attacked Dukla to ensure that he would never be able to ally with the Byzantines against him. When Samuel and his army arrived, Jovan Vladimir, unsurprisingly, fled to the mountains. Now, those mountains had helped the Serbian armies defeat the Bulgarians in the past, and it was hoped that they would again. But Samuel was not about to play that game. Dividing his forces, he left some soldiers to monitor Jovan while the rest moved to besiege the coastal fortress at Ulcini. You can see photos of the fortress as it looks today on the website. But if Samuel could take Ulcinia, it was only a few more kilometers to the capital at Bar. He was very, very close to cutting off Jovan completely. Well, luckily for him, even that wouldn't be necessary. After Jovan refused to surrender, some of his nobles effectively did it for him, offering their services to Samuel. Resistance soon crumbled and Jovan was taken and imprisoned in Samuel's island palace at Prespa. And just like that, Duclia's resistance was over. But there was still much work to be done. The Croatian kingdom to the north had already gone further than Jovan Vladimir. Their ruler Sviatoslav Soronya, had, just as his father had done, had allied with the Byzantines in exchange for recognition of his right to rule. This was unacceptable to Samuel, but more than that, it was an opportunity. Sviatoslav's brothers, Kreshimir III and Goryaslav, fervently opposed his rule and asked for Samuel's help to overthrow their brother. <laughs> Needless to say, Samuel was more than happy to oblige. Heck, he was already in the neighborhood. So Samuel moved north along the Adriatic coast, first taking Kotor, before getting stuck at the city of Ragusa, modern Dubrovnik. 
Failing to take the formidable walls, Samuel devastated the surroundings and moved on to destroy Split and then Trogir. He finally made his way all the way north to Zadar, where, after an unsuccessful siege, he decided to turn back. But that doesn't mean the whole venture was a failure. No, far from it. Samuel gave the territory he took to Kreshemir III and Goyaslav, and that added strength to them and allowed them, in about two years, to defeat their brother in the year 1000 and become co-rulers of Croatia. Now, of course, they wouldn't be proved to be the best of friends for Samuel, as they willingly became Byzantine vassals following the collapse of the First Bulgarian Empire after a time. But for now, Samuel had some friends in the neighborhood. Samuel's adventures on the coast also signaled an important change in Byzantine imperial policy. Basil knew he couldn't effectively use his navy that far from Constantinople, and so he formally transferred that responsibility to his vassal state of Venice. Now this, in many ways, marks the beginning of Venice's expansion as an Adriatic and eventually a true Mediterranean power. In fact, the Croatian king Samuel had helped to pose had immediately fled to Venice. But now we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. There was also love afoot, would you believe it? Around the same time, a woman named Kosara, who was definitely related to Samuel in some way, possibly his sister-in-law, we don't know for sure, well, she had fallen in love with Jovan Vladimir while he was imprisoned on that island palace. Samuel, in fact, gave his approval to the union, and the couple were married and returned to rule Duklia as a Bulgarian vassal state. Oh, but that's not all. Samuel's daughter Miroslava had also, around the same time, fallen in love with Ashot, the son of the Byzantine commander of Thessalonica, who was actually related to Samuel as well. You'll remember we talked about them last time. Now, fortunately, the two lovers only shared a common ancestor a few generations back, so I guess this was okay. More of a personal decision what you think about uh, the whole relatives thing. But in any case, Samuel, in this case, really didn't have much choice to say okay, as Miroslava threatened suicide if she was not allowed to marry Ashot. The couple were sent to command Durekion, modern Dures, in Albania, a major Adriatic port. Now, unfortunately for Samuel, Ashot later fled the city on a Byzantine ship carrying a forged letter promising the city to Basel, with both Samuel's father-in-law and daughter along for the ride. In return, they were all given positions of prominence in Constantinople. It was surely a very, very deep knife in his gut, a terrible betrayal. But there's still yet more love going on in the realm, as Samuel had set up an alliance with the Magyars, the Hungarians, around this time by marrying his son and heir, Gavriel Radomir, you'll remember from earlier, to the daughter of the Hungarian king. Now, the Hungarians were, in theory, a powerful ally at this time, but considering the ongoing conflicts with Basil, securing an ally to his rear was clearly an important move for Samuel. Or (laughs) it would have been. Because sadly, Gavril Radomir, let's say he let his passions get ahead of him. I'll let Runciman tell the rest of the story because, well, his rendition is just too good not to share. Quote, Stephen sent his daughter to wed Samuel's son and heir, Gabriel Radomir. But the Hungarian girl was not as lucky in love as were her sisters-in-law. There was, at the court of Ohrada, Ohrid, a slave called Irene who had been captured as a child at the fall of Larissa. 
a creature of marvelous beauty, the princess, probably all too well endowed with the looks of her father's race, the race that gave its name to ogres, could never hope to rival the radiant Greek captive. Gabriel Radomir forgot his wife's high lineage, that her brother was a king and her mother a princess of the imperial blood of the West, and left her for the low-born Irene. Samuel, always sympathetic to his children's passions, condoned the desertion and recognized the marriage with Irene. The Hungarian alliance was of very little value. Now, of the further fate of the princess, nothing is known. Deserted and divorced in this wild court far from her home, she probably sought refuge in a convent. End quote. Now, important note, Runciman incorrectly labels the king at the time as being Stephen, when it was actually his father, Geza, as well as he sort of uh, Latinizes all the names. So you'll notice, you know, Gabriel becomes Gabriel and Samuel becomes Samuel. But anyway, so at this point, Samuel's really going to need all the help he can get because in the year 1001, Basil turns the full force of the Byzantine war machine towards Bulgaria for the first time. Battle-hardened troops were taken from the eastern frontier with the Arabs in order to make a full assault. As you'll recall from before, Basil is more than done playing games and is ready to see Bulgaria fall for good. This great army marched to Philippopolis, modern Plovdiv, before heading north to cut off some wheel from the northeastern part of his kingdom and exploit his more limited control and support in the area. Now, many cite the fact that Samuel wasn't particularly popular in what was so recently the core of the Bulgarian state. In any case, Byzantine forces captured Preslav and Pliska with ease as local commanders surrendered willingly. Then, by taking Silistra on the Danube, Basil completed his first move. He then retired to spend the winter in Mosinopolis, near the Aegean Sea. On the map, you'll on the website, it's labeled as Komotoni the modern Greek name of the nearby city, but you'll see it there. Now, when the spring of 1002 came, Basil set off again, but this time to cut off some wheel from his recent conquests in Greece. So he moved southwest to Thessalonica before recapturing many Greek fortresses Samuel had so recently taken for himself. Once again, loyalty to some wheel seemed thin on the ground, as even Dobermir, a man married to one of Samuel's nieces, surrendered his fortress at Veria, and joined the Byzantines. Once again, Samuel was even betrayed by his family members. Now, it's curious to think here what the feeling must have been on the ground. I mean, while Samuel obviously had many successes, it's possible maybe he lacked some charisma or was believed to be less than legitimate having so recently retaken the throne. I mean, whatever the reason, the lack of loyalty demonstrated by so many people so close to him is causing immeasurable harm to his war effort and is a bit sad to watch. This is another case where I would do just about anything to read more first-hand accounts from the people in question and to know what they were thinking and why they were making the choices they were making. But sadly, as you know, the lack of first-hand sources is still a fairly big handicap. But still, it wasn't all bad news for Samuel. He still did have some loyal commanders. The next fortress on Basil's warpath showed just that. At Servia, the commander Nikulitsa organized a stern defense. But still, it wasn't enough. Basil took the fortress and captured the man in the process. But what's interesting here is actually that this man was extraordinarily loyal, even when you're not comparing him to his contemporaries by any standard. Now, Nikulitsa 
was a Greek nobleman from Larissa, that city that Samuel was rather brutal with and had laid siege to over and over again. Well, after he was captured by the Byzantines, given a noble title by the Byzantines, he actually escaped Constantinople to rejoin Samuel in his fight against the Byzantines. Oh, but it gets even better, because later he's captured again, and again he escapes from Constantinople to continue the fight. In fact, way down the line, when the Bulgarian state is completely collapsed, he'll continue guerrilla actions in the mountains until finally surrendering, when he realizes he's surrounded and has no chance. But Basil, at this point, well, Basil just imprisons this poor guy. Uh, it's a bit surprising he never gets put to death. I mean, uh, you, I wonder how many times you can escape from Constantinople before you really get punished. But here's a man whose life story, I, I mean, I want to read this guy's life story. Again, I want to know more about this. You know, what, what would on earth would make this Greek noble from a city so brutally attacked by some wheel, unbelievably loyal to him? And even after he's gone, loyal to the Bulgarian state even when Samuel's family were defecting in droves. Now, our best guess is that this loyalty resulted from the fact that Samuel had spared his life when Samuel took Larissa. Besides that, my best guess is that, I don't know, maybe it was in his blood. Nikolitz's grandson uh, in the mid-11th century is actually going to lead a rebellion uh, against the Byzantines. So, yeah, maybe it's just a family who likes to fight the man, to use a modern term. In any case, the year's campaigning ended at the fortress of Edessa, where after weeks of siege, the city fell as well. The Bulgarian population of this entire region was then resettled between the Mesta and Maritza rivers, around where the Rodobi Mountains kind of meet the Aegean Sea. Now, this was an interesting move by Basil, as it indicated that he both wanted to de-Bulgarize northern Greece, and that he wasn't really very concerned about Bulgarian expansion to the southern Rodopi Mountains. Clearly, Basil was confident that he was nearing the destruction of Samuel and his Bulgarian state, and it wasn't necessarily to move this uh, Bulgarian population farther away from Samuel and his people. Now, in another example of the fact that everyone seems to be extremely loyal or extremely disloyal to Samuel, Dragshan, the commander of Edessa, was captured. He was brought to Thessalonica, married a local noblewoman, had some children, and tried to escape three times back to Bulgaria before finally being impaled for his well, disloyalty and continence, whatever you want to call it. But taking a step back here, in two years of campaigning, Basil had reduced Samuel to his country's Macedonian heartland and its newer conquests in the north, in Serbia and Bosnia. Basil used his campaigning season to just cut off one area after another. At this moment, in the year 1003, the third consecutive spring, he strikes at the great Danubian fortress of Vidin to further isolate Bulgaria from the north. But things quickly got worse for Samuel, as the Hungarians, so recently allies and friends, after you know the princess's son marriage, intervened themselves against the Bulgarians. This was because, following the death of Geza, Samuel's commander of the northwestern region of Bulgaria, Aktum, had backed two local Hungarian rulers based in modern Transylvania and Wallachia against Geza's son Stephen I. Now, needless to say, Stephen was not amused by this. He responded by attacking Achtum mercilessly, just as the Byzantines were laying siege to his capital at Vidin. Now, sadly, I'll have to lead it there. I was hoping to conclude Samuel's reign in this episode, but there's just been way too much to discuss, and I think we'll have to leave that till next time. 
So in the next episode, you can look forward to hearing about one of the most consequential battles in all of Bulgarian history. Indeed, one of the greatest examples of brutality and warfare that human history has to offer. Next time, we'll be hearing about the making of Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Now, this episode was produced by Lance Nelson, and the theme music was written by Teddy Raven. The story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Now, please like us on Facebook. We post some cool stuff there on occasion. And definitely leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, I love the feedback we get from you guys there. And right now, we're trying to think of all kinds of changes we can make to make this podcast even better for you. Also, you can now listen to us directly on SoundCloud, so try that out. And as always, feel free to donate with the PayPal button on the website. Lastly, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast created by the aforementioned Lance Nelson and frequently co-hosted by yours truly. You can even hear me give things like an audio tour of Sofia and generally discuss what it's like living there today. Now, also, very soon, uh, well, now actually, it's all done, I finished making a three-part special series on the history of Bonsko in the premium version of the Bonsko app, which you can find in the uh, Apple App Store. So check that out. Give it a buy. Give it a listen. And finally, uh, if I don't see you, if I don't hear from you by then, uh, I wish you all very, very happy holidays and a wonderful new year. So in the meantime, Uspech or good luck.